1: This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business.
2: Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome new listeners joining us on radio affiliates coast to coast in all 50 states including new friends in Alaska and Hawaii. And a special shout-out to our men and women in uniform who are joining us from remote locations over the Internet. Thank you for making us part of your Newsweek. In just a moment... Former United States Ambassador to Afghanistan and Deputy Chairman of NATO, General Carl Eikenberry, will be joining us to talk about a war which seems to have no end. I'm, of course, talking about the U.S. engagement in Afghanistan, which began 16 years ago and now has become our country's longest war. Despite many who say America no longer has the will or the financial means to enter into long-term engagements abroad, our persistence in Afghanistan for more than a decade and a half seems to contradict that opinion. General Eikenberry has dealt firsthand with the challenges in Afghanistan from both a diplomatic and military perspective, and we're honored to hear from him today. But before Mr. Eikenberry joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Carl Eikenberry is a graduate of West Point, where he received his commission as second lieutenant. He earned his master's in Eastern Studies from Harvard University and graduate degree in political science from Stanford University. Eikenberry served two tours of duty in Afghanistan as U.S. Security Coordinator for Afghanistan and Chief of the Office of Military Cooperation, working closely with the United Nations and leaders of Pakistan and Afghanistan. In 2005, he assumed the role as Commander of Combined Forces in Afghanistan. But what you may remember Eikenberry best for was his role as deputy chairman of NATO and U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan under the Obama administration, a position he served between 2009 and 2011. Today, Eikenberry is a faculty member at the Shorenstein Asia-Pacific Research Center at Stanford University. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, former U.S. Ambassador and Deputy Chairman of NATO, General Carl Eikenberry. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Eikenberry.
3: Rebecca, delighted to be with you today.
2: I thought that uh, perhaps a a good place to start our conversation today might be to ask you whether you agree with John McCain and Lindsey Graham's recent comments that after 16 years, the U.S. finds itself at a stalemate in Afghanistan.
3: Yeah, I do, Rebecca. Uh, We we entered Afghanistan in uh, 2001. In the aftermath of 9/11, in order to find and either capture or kill Osama bin Laden, and our initial military campaign in the fall, in the late fall of 2001, was tactically very successful. Uh, we had negotiated with the uh, Taliban to uh, try to uh, get them to uh, relieve, to turn over bin Laden who they were giving sanctuary to in Afghanistan. That's where he planned his attacks against the United States. They refused to do that, and so the Bush administration launched an assault into Afghanistan. Tactically, uh, we quickly toppled the Taliban government, and we dispersed al-Qaeda. But strategically, we did not succeed. Strategically, we allowed bin Laden to escape from Afghanistan, and then he went into Pakistan, where... He found sanctuary, either witting or unwitting sanctuary, by the uh, Pakistan uh, government. And then over the next uh, 10 years, we made efforts to locate bin Laden. We finally found him in 2011 and uh, killed him in a daring raid in Pakistan. But the fact remains that still today, five years after that, the Afghan government is weak it has difficulty in holding territory against the taliban since we peaked our surge uh, back in 2012 at about a hundred thousand troops and have come down to a force level of about 8400 today steadily since that time taliban has gained more ground al-qaeda uh, has relocated from camps inside of pakistan to parts of afghanistan although they're still in pakistan And since that time as well, we've had the emergence of ISIL uh, or ISIS on Afghan territory. So we find ourselves very much at a military stalemate uh, on the ground, and I'd characterize it as one in which the United States, in the absence of providing at least the amount of military support and financial assistance that we do today, that in the absence of that, that the Afghan government would suffer uh, continued uh, defeats at the hand of Taliban. And although I don't think Taliban has the uh, strength or the coherence to topple the Afghan government, I think what we would find over time with the diminishment of U.S. military support, that we'd find that uh, uh, Taliban would continue to gain more control of the countryside and the Security threat to the United States with that is into those areas of Taliban control. We could assume that international terrorist organizations such as al-Qaeda or ISIS fighting against Taliban to uh, control its own territory would reconstitute themselves and pose threats to the United States homeland, those of our allies.
2: Well, let's talk about the weakness of the Afghani government itself. Because this was something that you were concerned about way back in 2009, I mean, you felt that there was potential for the uh, Afghanistan government and economy to become overly dependent on the United States. Uh, on the other hand, we have allies like Japan, Germany, South Korea, and other peaceful nations who depend on the U.S. militarily, uh, but you know, and, and we maintain permanent military presences in, the, in those countries. Um, But you were concerned on a larger level that they would become dependent far more than just for military stability. Should we think of Afghanistan more along the lines of of allies like Japan, Germany, South Korea, where uh, we need to have a permanent presence, uh, bases there, help them rebuild the country uh, rather than we're in. And then we have a, a particular date in which we're expected to get out.
3: Those are, uh, those are the key questions, Rebecca, that have to be answered in Washington, D.C., and hopefully with a debate that includes the American people behind it. So two questions. But I think First the American all,
2: people are thinking that when, when we get involved in these engagements, we go in and then we get out, like the American Red Cross does after a disaster. They go in they, until people make arrangements, and then they're supposed to get out. Of course, when we had a disaster like Katrina, that's not how it <laughs> rolled out. So th- I think that's the expectation the American people have, don't you?
3: I do very much. You know, what? Uh, when we first went into Afghanistan, the American interest and the objective was very clear. It was to uh, kill uh, Osama bin Laden and to destroy al-Qaeda, who had attacked the United States of America and had attacked the United States of America Uh, and our uh, interest overseas for some years. Uh, However, when we failed to get bin Laden initially, then uh, we were in a real quandary in Afghanistan. So we couldn't go into Pakistan where bin Laden was. And the best we could do is operate outside of that, operate uh, inside of Afghanistan, and then try to develop intelligence resources and capabilities along the Afghan-Pakistan border, keep searching for bin Laden, and then we finally found him in 2011. But during that decade that we were in Afghanistan, not there initially to make Afghanistan into a prosperous state or try to take that troubled nation and put them on a road to a Denmark, we were there because that's where we had to base out of to try to get bin Laden. And what occurred, I think, over the years then, from 2002 onward, is that the United States then, inside of Afghanistan, we started to develop what we called the mission creep then. So now first, We're going to we're gonna
2: have to take a, a quick break here, but I'd like to pick it up on the other end of the break uh, and talk about that mission creep, because I think that's where the, de- the dependence of Afghanistan on the United States started. We're going to take our first break, but stay where you are. We'll be right back with General Carl Eikenberry. You're listening to The Costa Report. If you're a fan of big ideas and thinking, then you're going to want to sink your teeth into On The Verge. Jim Lehrer, John Scully, Alan Dershowitz, and dozens of business and government leaders from the full political spectrum have given On the Verge their highest reviews. And you can help drive the book to the top of the bestseller list by ordering On the Verge from Amazon right now. Our goal is to distribute 25,000 copies before the official release date. By placing your order for On the Verge right now, you'll help us beat that number. We need every listener to go to Amazon.com and order On The Verge as quickly as you can. And while you're at Amazon, order first edition gift copies of On The Verge for friends and family. Because they won't last long. On The Verge. On sale now at Amazon.com. That's On The Verge at Amazon.com. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Sellers. Scott, we keep hearing about the wines that are being developed in Monterey County. How would you describe the climate conditions for grapes?
4: Monterey County has a lot of little pockets that give you the opportunity to grow a variety of grapes. It comes down to the match of location and climate with the varietal that you're going to grow. And where we grow in the Highlands, it's prototypical cool climate. We're even in the northern side of the Highlands. So that is ideal for both Pinot and Chardonnay. Chardonnay strives really well in a lot of our county, as well as Pinot, but I would say that this is the most optimal location. You get wind, you get sun exposure, the benches come off of the inland side of the coastal mountains. It's an optimal position. You can order any of our products directly from us by visiting our website, caracciolicellars.com, or calling the tasting room directly, 831-622-7722.
0: Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m. I shower. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. I start laundry at 8. At 10, we go for a walk. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. For
5: those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. I am done with my mattress. That's right, I'm not spending another night on this old bag. My new mattress comes today, and this thing is out of here. Bye bye, mattress. Yep, bye bye, mattress. So says you and about a thousand other people every day. And that's a lot of old mattresses with no place to go. There's the landfill, of course, where they just take up space. But what a waste. Because you could send it to a mattress recycler, where old mattresses get broken down into steel, foam, wood, and fiber that become new steel, carpet padding, home insulation, garden mulch, biomass fuel, locomotive oil filters, and all kinds of other great stuff. So bye bye mattress is right. But don't toss it. Recycle it. It's easy. And it's free. To find a mattress recycler in your area, visit buybuymattress.com.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former ambassador to Afghanistan and deputy chairman of NATO, Mr. Carl Eikenberry. So let's pick it up. Where we left off before the break, uh, you were explaining that the reason we went into Afghanistan was uh, to topple the Taliban and find bin Laden. And once bin Laden escaped to Pakistan, we needed a location to operate from. But uh, during the time in which we were operating there, we we created a bit of an unhealthy dependency on the United States. So even after we killed bin Laden... Uh, we we ended up with a weak Afghani government. And uh, I, I believe the the latest uh, estimates are that uh, roughly the, the Afghan government is is in control of roughly somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of its own territory. Is, is that about right?
3: That's uh, that's about right. It's the, the, those are hard statistics to be precise about, but I think the Rebecca the numbers at about two thirds, perhaps of the uh, country that the country that the government maintains a positive control over. Mm-hmm. Uh
2: huh. And 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 so we've got this situation now, right? After sixteen years, rather than. Helping the Afghan government become stronger, helping the economy there become stronger uh we they are they're, they're definitely um not in control of their own country they're at best two thirds and we're in a situation where uh if we pull out we're going to be doing the same thing we did in iraq we're we're just creating an opening
3: yeah it um it, it, I think that America with the great intentions Uh, when we went into Afghanistan in the first decade of uh, this century, uh, we had uh, high hopes for our our ability to stabilize the uh, country, to help the Afghans after decades of warfare, constitute a government, as you had pointed out, getting the economy going again, get them security forces that were reliable. Uh, America is a very can-do kind of uh, country, but as we look back on it, there was a degree of... uh, I'd say uh, kindly, over-optimism, or you could say hubris on our part, the the notion that we could rapidly build uh, institutions of governance or help the Afghans do that, when we look back at our own history or much of the world and and see that in modern states, institutions are centuries in development. If you look at our efforts to build an Afghan army with a lot of money being poured into this effort, uh, our Idea was that as we Afghan army units and police units were fielded, they had the same interests that we did. That was to go out and find Taliban and to kill them and secure their people. But they have a different set of interests too. Not certain of America's staying power uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, They look uh, sometimes very much in the short term, and they're going to take assets and money, and they're going to act in a very rational way. And use that uh, to uh, benefit their family and to protect their patronage networks. And then, third, we've we've just tended to underestimate the importance of regional actors and how they can disrupt our efforts. So, we can send 100,000 troops into Afghanistan, but Pakistan, uh, which looks at our efforts to build a stable Afghan government aligned with us as very threatening to their own national security interests. For far much less money than it cost us and the taxpayers to send 100,000 troops to Afghanistan for far less effort, they can easily disrupt all that we're attempting to do. So what we're left with then, Rebecca, is trying to decide in this year of 2017, what are our enduring interests in uh, Afghanistan? Certainly uh, destroying ISIL and uh, keeping al-Qaeda off balance is important. But do we need to have a a military presence in the country in order to do that? If that's the argument, then we need a a military presence in Yemen, Libya, and many other places of North Africa and the Middle East right now. We certainly don't have the economic interest in Afghanistan. You can make an argument, maybe there's a geopolitical interest. uh, Iran uh, to the west, uh, Pakistan to the southeast with nuclear weapons, Russia to the north, China to the east. That's geopolitically prime real estate, but if we don't have the economic interest or the vital security interest, then is that a part of the world that we should be investing a lot of resources in order to keep that military presence, which excites a a terrorist reaction and it certainly excites a regional reaction from Iran, Pakistan, Russia, and possibly from China. So these these are hard questions to answer what is the vital national interest of the United States now in Afghanistan I'd say that with bin Laden killed and al-Qaeda not what it was back in uh, 2001 2002 that a reassessment of our national interest today is very much in order.
2: Well Let's briefly talk about the military presence, whether there needs to be an ongoing military presence or not. Uh, And I'm going to throw something sort of loaded at you here. Uh, Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, has proposed this idea that uh, the U.S. military can't stretch that far. We can't be in all places that we need to be in and that there comes a point at which there should be a handoff to a contract military. Now, I know this is a controversial idea, but uh, he is uh, in Washington, D.C. right now, lobbying very strongly that uh, the U.S. government military needs to begin pulling out of Afghanistan and hand that off to ongoing contract military. How do you feel about that?
3: I think that's a absolutely horrible idea uh, that to uh, to go down a path in which uh, the United States of America would start to use private security companies, uh, mercenaries hired in order to secure America's overseas interests. Well,
2: now we've got a long history of using
3: them. And we I have think to be we, honest and,
2: about that. Yeah.
3: Oh, absolutely. Rebecca, in the first Gulf War, Uh, We had, I think, uh, with this large expeditionary force that we sent in the first Gulf War in the early 1990s, we ended up with an expeditionary force of about 400,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines. We had about 7,000, 8,000 civilian contractors there. Now, at the height of our surge in Afghanistan, 100,000 troops, we had more civilian contractors than military forces. At the height of our Iraq surge, about 150,000, the same applied. I think this is very dangerous for our republic to uh, be moving in such a direction that why why do we use contractors? Because the volunteer force is not large enough to do what Washington and our government wants to have done with our military forces. So members of Congress, the executive branch, military commanders, they like contractors because guess what? then those contractors aren't part of the debate that goes on in the public about how many troops should we be sending into a particular mission. Let's say in Afghanistan at the height of the surge, 100,000 American uniformed troops in that country. What if we would not have been able to send the 100,000 civilian contractors? Then the debate would have been over 200,000 American troops. That would have excited a debate. But guess what? We wouldn't have had enough combat power to do that, and we would have had to activate the National Guard. We would have had to activate the reserves. And guess what? If we would have then gone to activate reservists at that level, congressmen would have started to hear about the pain that was being inflicted. So in your view,
2: using contractors is sort of circumventing uh, congressional uh, um, visibility, if you will, in terms of how many uh, American bodies, contractor or otherwise, are are really on the ground. I want to talk about this a little bit more as we come uh, to the other side of the break. We're going to take a short intermission, but stay with us. We'll be back after these important messages from today's sponsors. You're listening to The Costa Report.
4: When I say Italy, what comes to mind?
2: Venice. Capri. Oh my gosh, Capri was marvelous. The views, the cliffside views, or traveling to Sorrento. Perillo
5: Tours. Oh, Perillo Tours, for sure. Perillo.
2: Hi, I'm Steve
5: Perillo of Perillo Tours. With over 70 years of tour experience to Italy, it's no wonder Perillo Tours is synonymous with travel to Italy.
2: I think of the culture. And to walk up to certain areas and touch a wall and think, well, this wall's like 3,000 years old.
5: Being on a Perillo Tour on our anniversary was better than anything I can remember ever on an anniversary. I personally approve every itinerary to ensure a stress-free, once-in-a-lifetime vacation.
1: Salute
4: Call now for your free insider's guide to Perillo's Italy. Call in the next 30 minutes and qualify for a $100 gift card when you travel with us. Call 800-897-7176. 800-897-7176. 800-897-7176.
1: I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, I had one thing on my mind. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball every chance I could. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn the signs of a stroke fast. F-A-S-T, F, face drooping, A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. Because the sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in their recovery. I'm Paul George. Protect the ones you love. Spot a stroke F-A-S-T. Fast. Life is why. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council.
5: Women now make up 37% of the workforce, changing their role forever. Harvard Medical School has now opened its doors to new female applicants.
1: The first woman is now in space.
0: The majority of last year's doctorate degrees were earned by women. We've come so far, but our news is changing for the worse. More women die from heart disease and stroke than men, even though it can be prevented. Make a change at GoRedForWomen.org today. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women
5: but two minutes twice a day, making sure they brush their teeth is easier, and it could help save them from a lifetime of tooth pain. Visit two twomin2x.org to find out more. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Mouths, Healthy Lives, and the Ag Council. Psst. Yeah, you. It's me. Your heart. Listen to me. We've got to talk. High blood pressure is serious, and yours? Whoa. What happened to us? We used to be so much more active. But lately, you've been ignoring me. I know you think I'm just going to keep ticking away forever, but you're wrong. You can do so much more to control your high blood pressure. Doing the minimum isn't doing enough. I'm under a lot of pressure and can quit whenever I want. Bet you didn't know that. But I like my job. Just treat me better. Check on me. Give me something green to nibble on every once in a while. And maybe we can do some exercise on occasion. Let's get to it.
0: After all, we're in this together.
5: Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. Check Change Control. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is Carl Eikenberry. And before the break, we were talking about the idea that Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, is floating in Washington, D.C., that Afghanistan now be turned over to contract military personnel. And uh, you were explaining why that wasn't a viable idea.
3: Yeah, I think it's a a horrible idea, um, Rebecca, that... Contractors uh, being sent to theaters of war like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, how does that uh, how does that help us? Well, it helps us in that we don't have to then mobilize as many uh, uniform military troops to serve the uh, to c- accomplish the tasks that the contractors are sent to uh, to perform. They're not as expensive because military uh, personnel, In addition to their pay, they get retirement and health care benefits. Contractors don't. So you can make a business argument, let's do this. But when you think in terms of strategy politics, uh, I think it's it's just a really, really bad idea. I say that because, one, is if you look from the perspective of the country that these uh, contractors are being sent to, and – Uh, There's the United States of America talking about the importance of rule of law and discipline for the armed forces. And what do we do? We send a bunch of civilian mercenaries uh, not under a firm rule of law system to go and do the bidding of a nation that can't mobilize enough political will to put uniformed troops forward. Secondly, that when... We mobilize uh, and send large numbers of contractors abroad into these uh, combat zones. Uh, What are we really doing here domestically? Well, we're making it easy for politicians not to have to mobilize National Guard uh, even more to potentially have to start to draft Americans. Well, no politician wants to do that. So this is a political cop-out then for Washington, D.C., and I have to say it's a cop-out for the American people, too. You know, if we go back to the early days of the Republic, when the founders of the Constitution, uh, founders of our nation debated the outlines of the Constitution, one of the most important debates that took place was questions of war and peace, and the founders, Hamilton, Madison, uh, they were very concerned with establishing a system in our country. And so that if decisions to send uh, Americans off to war were being made, the American people would have a vote in this, so to speak. And so we had a set of checks and balances established within our constitution. And very importantly, this direct connection between the American people, their armed forces, through the members of Congress, with the decision to end the draft in this country and go with an all-volunteer force, that was broken. And so how could it be now that uh, in 2011, 10 years after we went into Afghanistan, we surged up to 100,000 troops into that country? Do you think that if we had a draft army at that point in time, we would have ever had 100,000 troops 10 years after 9-11 with a failed campaign in Afghanistan, Do you think the American people with a draft army would have allowed Congress to sit idle as 100,000 troops were sent into Afghanistan or 150,000 troops into Iraq? I think the answer is no. It's not to say that the decision to conduct our military campaigns in Iraq or Afghanistan were necessarily bad decisions. But what we can say is the American people are divorced from those decisions. Now, to say that we're going to go beyond this and we're not even going to send all volunteer forces, but instead we're going to rely on civilian contractors to do our bidding, I think that would be another uh, step down a very slippery slope in our republic where we're starting to hand off the responsibilities to go to war and project American power abroad, and let's outsource that entirely now to the executive branch in Washington, D.C. And furthermore, let's subcontract it to contractors.
2: Well, I I agree. I agree with you. I I don't think it's a good idea to subcontract to mercenary forces. But I I actually have two practical reasons. One is they're not they don't have to abide by the uniform code of military justice and so their behavior uh, their their rules of engagement are very very different and not always controllable, as we have experienced in, in other nations. But I have a, a very practical concern, and that is when you subcontract to people who make money from war, there's no incentive to resolve conflict. In fact, con- resolving conflict there or tampering down um, uh, you know, conflict uh, would mean unemployment. You, you make less money. And, and so there's no – from a business model standpoint, there's no incentive for contractors to, um, you know, uh, I don't know, resolve the engagement and get out. Why would they?
3: Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I
2: mean, there's a reverse incentive to keep it going.
3: There is. And, again, in terms of – you mentioned uh, the, the question of compliance with rule of law accountability. I can't tell you how many – Uh, bad days I had as a commander and as uh, the American ambassador in Kabul, where I was being uh, called to the presidential palace or I was being called to the Afghan parliament to try to explain the misbehavior of contractors.
2: Oh, I I absolutely believe it. As you know, uh, my father moved our family over into Laos, which was uh populated with mercenaries and subcontractors and so i have firsthand experience with what you're talking about and uh, and that bothers me it bothers me that they don't have the same rules of engagement and also that there's no incentive to resolve unfortunately general we are just about out of time <laughs> uh, i could keep you here for hours but uh, before we say goodbye i'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your service to our country and also for making time to be with us today thank you general
3: Rebecca, it's always a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Before we take our scheduled break, I want to tell you about a free offer that's guaranteed to change the way you feel about shaving about a week ago. I finally got my free Harry's razor shaving kit in the mail. Now, I'm I'm the first to tell you that never, not in a million years, did I think there was any difference between razors. But I was in for a surprise, and, and not just me. Three million other people like me have had the same experience and switched over to Harry's razors. And, and here is why. The closeness of the shave you get from a Harry's razor is unlike any other multi-blade razor on the market. That clean, perfectly smooth skin Harry's razors leave behind is something you have to experience for yourself. Won't, it won't matter what I tell you. You have to try it. It's one of those things. As soon as you try it, you think, okay, I, I'm in. I want you to try it for yourself for a limited time. Harry's is offering listeners of the Costa Report. Get, get a pen, write it down. A free razor with five precision blades, shave gel, and a blade cover. Just visit harrys.com slash Costa, C-O-S-T-A. Your first razor and your blades are completely free. When you visit harrys.com slash Costa, do it right now. One more time to experience what 3 million others who have switched to Harry's have and what I experienced. I want you to have the same experience I did. Go to harrys, H-A-R-R-Y-S, harrys.com slash Costa. Be sure you put the slash Costa in there to get your free razor kit. And then you know what? Once you use the razor kit, I promise you, you're not going back to the razor that you're using today. Uh, You you just wouldn't. It gives you such a clean shave. And I'm talking to the ladies and the men that are listening today. But hurry before the offer expires. Again, harrys.com slash Costa, H A R R Y S dot com slash Costa, C O S T A to get your free Harry's razor, and uh, you'll be happy you did. And, and you know, there's no gimmick here. It's completely free. You don't have to buy something to get it. They'll ship it to you. You try it, and I promise you'll be reordering from Harry's. Plus, they're half the price. I forgot to get that in. They're half the price of other multi-blade razor systems. We have to take a short break, but stay tuned. We'll be right back, and I'll tell you what I think we ought to do in Afghanistan. You're listening to the Costa Report. hi i'm joan london with a place for mom over the years we've helped thousands of families find senior care and today's senior living communities have never been better with amazing amenities like movie theaters exercise rooms and swimming pools public cafes bars and bistros even pet care services and nobody understands your options like the advisors at a place for mom These are local expert advisors that will partner with you to find the perfect place and determine the right level of care, whether that's just a helping hand or full-time memory care. Best of all, it's a free service. Call today, a place for mom. You know your family, we know senior living. Together, we'll make the right choice.
6: Call
5: a place for mom right now to get our free ebook on financing senior care as well as a free referral for senior living communities in your area. Call 1 800 806 8572. That's 1 800 806 8572. It may be hard to believe, but people just like you are already saving money. Feedthepig.org makes it easy. Their simple savings plan teaches you how to start saving without going overboard so you don't need to mooch off your friends you gonna finish that grape you mean the one in my mouth you don't need to stop buying the necessities what you're smelling is a natural musk ew you don't need to be a medical test subject
6: how do you feel mostly okay i (laughs) sometimes though
5: (laughs) you don't need to get a second job as a stuntman You just need an internet connection. Don't get left behind. Start your personal savings plan with the tips and tools on feedthepig.org. That way, you don't need to sell your soul to the devil. 15 bucks is the best I can do. All right, deal. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council.
6: Hey, America. We need to have a little talk.
2: Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa. And if you're just joining us, we have been speaking with former United States ambassador to Afghanistan and deputy director of NATO, General Carl Eikenberry, who you will recall was a controversial nominee for the ambassador position owing to his military background. Uh, But we don't normally nominate uh, people from the military uh, for ambassador positions. But it turns out that Eikenberry was actually the perfect candidate for Afghanistan because his philosophy of using soft power was exactly what was needed to succeed in Afghanistan and and in other autocratic nations. So what exactly is soft power and why is it so effective? Well, the best example of soft power I know is post-war Japan. Here, the United States faced a, a situation where we had not only defeated a heinous enemy who publicly beheaded U.S. Shoulder, uh, soldiers and showed blatant disregard for how POWs should be treated, uh, but, but it was also a country which, had u- which we had used the first atomic weapons against, killing 130,000 Japanese civilians. When Douglas General MacArthur and his soldiers rolled into Japan, the prospects of turning that country around and making it one of the strongest allies in United States history were nil to none. And yet, that is exactly what happened. Today, you'd look long and hard to find an ally more committed to the United States than the Japanese people. And the reason for that is because of soft power. Soft power means using more than military might to gain control of dangerous conditions. It means emulating the qualities and the behavior we expect. In other words, by showing people a better way to govern and live, we appeal to a more reliable form of loyalty than forced compliance. A people who are treated as if they have no choice might cooperate for a period of time. But then what? When you take away a country's ability to stand on its own two feet and make them dependent, this is a cooperation. It's an allegiance by default. It isn't the kind of ally that you can depend on. General MacArthur recognized this and embarked upon a plan to show respect to the Japanese people, beginning with the Japanese emperor. Although stripped of all legitimate power, the emperor was looked upon as an important individual because how the emperor was treated would set the tone for how the Japanese people were treated. So the U.S. began an aggressive campaign of rebuilding post-war Japan with the emperor's cooperation and with the goal of helping that country to become wholly independent. And we succeeded. The same country, right, where 130,000 civilians on Japanese soil were killed, right, suddenly became a world power. And we were responsible for setting Japan up to become that economic superpower. This created an unwavering American ally in Asia, the one we have today. That allegiance was not something that was forced. It was nurtured through rebuilding and respect. Now, let's look at the situation we face in Afghanistan. The United Nations reports that in the past 16 years, an estimated 360,000 individuals have died as a result of war-related activities in that country. Two and a half times as many as were killed by atomic weapons in Japan. What's more, the Taliban still controls somewhere between 10 and 40 percent, let's say, of the country. And, and, and by the way, those percentages are beginning to creep up again. And this is very worrisome. Making matters more difficult, we've turned the Afghan economy into one which is completely dependent on the United States to prop it up. There is no viable economy in Afghanistan. You heard it here. No industries, no exports, no realistic plan for the country to recover from their devastation. The fact is, instead of soft power, the U.S. has relied on hard power, which means mandatory unilateral compliance, something history has proven time and time again, does not produce sustainable peace or great allies. We are the country who helped rebuild Japan and Germany and South Korea, the country that brought democracy and the rule of law and respect for human rights to these nations. We showed benevolence and compassion and modeled what it meant to be the world's great superpower. We led by example, and we offered people a better way of life. And when faced with a better option, most people most logical hard-working everyday people on main street will choose the better choice but never did america embark on a military strategy which made a country dependent on us we didn't do that in germany we didn't do that in japan vietnam korea and we must not continue to do that in afghanistan what afghanistan needs now more than ever is a plan to make Afghanistan into an independent economy which does not need the United States. And in so doing, we will engender an ally that this country can count on for years to come. Of course, that'll take money. It'll take patience and leaders like Eikenberry who understand the effectiveness of soft power and how to use it. If President Trump John McCain, Lindsey Graham and others are looking for a way out of Afghanistan. They lead, they needn't look no further than America's strongest allies and then follow the time-tested empirical model which has served this nation so well. We already know what works. We know there are no shortcuts. We know the consequences of cutting the cord before a nation can stand on its own two feet. And now we must act on what we know. Now, today we've been talking about what it takes to succeed when the challenge ahead is complicated and specialized. And everyone knows that no matter what that challenge is, whether it's fighting a war on the battlefield or in the competitive marketplace, success starts and ends with having the right Talent, the right people for the job, which brings me to my question Are you hiring? And if you are, do you know where to go to find the most qualified and experienced candidates? And that is where Zip Recruiter can help. With ziprecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with one click. Then powerful technology matches the right person to your job. And you can imagine how much time you save by posting a job just one time and having it appear on 100 job sites. Never mind how much you increase the odds of locating that perfect person for your opening. This is why ZipRecruiter is different and used by thousands of businesses, small and large. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of the jobs posted on ZipRecruiter locate a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. So ZipRecruiter is not only thorough, it's fast. And imagine how you'd feel filling that job that you're having a tough time filling in just one day. No more juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, completely free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com report, R-E-P-O-R-T. That's ZipRecruiter.com report. One more time to try it for free go to ziprecruiter.com slash report, R-E-P-O-R-T, put that slash report in there so you can take advantage of the free offers. Don't you love these free offers? You, you can get a Harry's razor, you can post a job on Zip Recruiter. You know, you keep listening, folks, because if it's free, we probably are going to, you know, promote it on this, on this program. And we want you to take advantage of these free offers. So if you've got a job and you're, or your boss is taking their time filling a job, uh, tell them about ZipRecruiter. And that wraps up our first hour. If your station is leaving us after this first hour, my guest next week is former governor of Kentucky, Mr. Steve Bashir, who will be here to tell us how he led Kentucky to be the top dog in large-scale economic development per capita two years in a row and whether this model can actually be scaled up on a national basis. Don't miss Steve Bashir next week, right here on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. You're listening to the Costa Report.